once again. It's good to have everyone back with us tonight that are back with us tonight. Appreciate your attendance. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4. That's where we're going to be at. It's really a study of the whole chapter. But if you had to, to kind of sum the chapter up in one word, I, I think the problem with pride would be a good, uh, I guess that's more than one word. Pride would be the one word, but the problems with pride would kind of be a, a summary theme for that chapter. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight together in our time of, of worship uh, during uh, this hour. So if you've got your Bibles open up there, appreciate Greg reading for me from Proverbs chapter 6. And as you think about those verses, there's a whole list of sins there. A lot of times they're referred to as the seven deadly sins. There are seven sins that are listed there. Uh, seven things that we know that the Lord hates. And so tonight we'll be looking at the first one of those. The first of those being um, a proud look or, or pride. And so when you read those verses and you begin to think of, of why does that offend the Lord so much? Why is pride such a problem? Why is it something that he despises or that he, or that he hates? And, and as you begin to think through that, I think the book of Job sheds a little light on that, or at least it does for me. And you recall from the book of Job all the things that he endures, and he gets to the point to where uh, he's doing what you or I would probably be doing as well, and he's questioning everything. He's questioning why this could be. How could this happen? What's going on? And, and he's demanding answers from the Lord as if he is someone uh, to be able to, to, to question the Lord. And it's in Job chapter 38 and verse 3 where God says, Now prepare yourself like a man, for I will question you, and you shall answer me. <laughs> and the next several verses are pretty terrifying. I mean, if you just read them and you don't think about them, maybe not, but they're pretty terrifying if you put yourself in the shoes of Job and to be standing there before God Himself and to be told, get ready, because now I'm going to question you. And he goes through and he start at, starts asking Job all of, these, all of these questions. I think you and I sometimes today, if we're not careful, can get into that position of questioning God, get in that position to where we think we might know more about it than God. I, I know there's certainly times when I look at things and I don't understand why they are the way that they are. And it's easy to identify problems. And sometimes it's not so easy to try to go back through and to offer solutions to those problems, but to figure out how to make them better. And that's something that we see here with um, Job, in that he's wanting to question God, but when God begins to question him, there's no good answer that he as a man can give. His pride appears to get in the way. You and I have got to be careful of that today. So, let's look at James, beginning in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we think about the problems with pride. If you picked up an outline tonight, number one on there, I, I would submit to you that pride promotes strife. Pride promotes strife. Pride doesn't want you to get along. Pride doesn't want peace or happiness. Pride wants what's best for me. Pride thinks that I am better than you. And it makes it difficult to have a working relationship, to not have strife. If you wanted to eliminate all the world's problems, perhaps the first step would be to eliminate pride, right? Uh, if there was no pride, if there was no me before you or, 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 or me before uh, team, it'd get rid of a lot of the problems that we have in the world today. But that doesn't seem to be possible, letter A there, because it's man's desire for pleasure that leads to wars, that leads to lust, that leads to 
murder. At least that's what James says. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 1, James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, it's a lot of words there, right? In those first six verses. But if you follow me, it's letter B. There's a natural progression. There's a cascade, if you will, that develops and that takes place in those six verses. It begins right off the bat with a question. Uh, James asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? It begins with the question. You begin to ponder because we see the wars. We see the wars in our world today. There's fighting all across the globe. And it's interesting because it's not really that different from what was taking place in the days when the Bible was being written. There were wars back then as well. There's fighting, there's wars, there's turmoil. Why? It's because of, of pride. And it's the first question that James asks. Where do they come from? And, and you see a problem that arises from that. Number two, these, these wars come from your desires for pleasure. And so those see something that they want... And the only way to obtain that is to fight for that. Now, do you remember from this morning in Matthew chapter 6 where it talked about all the things that we worry about, we're anxious about, and we struggle for all these wars and these fights trying to obtain more and more and more? It's obvious that those who are engaged in that activity are not practicing Matthew 6.33. They're not seeking first the kingdom of God. Would that not change? I'm not saying it would eliminate all of them, but would that not change the numbers of wars and fighting and problems if we were all seeking first the kingdom of God. And so it begins with this question, where do the wars come from? A problem arises. They come from your desires for pleasure. And our desires for pleasure, number three there, it leads to more problems. It leads to lust. James says, but you do not have. Lust, a longing for more. Someone's car perhaps or maybe it's a bigger house perhaps or maybe it's a woman or a man or it's something that you see with your eyes that you want you lust but you do not have you murder you covet but you cannot obtain you fight and you war yet you do not have and I think it's interesting because James the next two parts seem to be counterintuitive he says you know why you don't have these things you don't have them because you don't ask but then the part that seems counterintuitive, the very next words out of his mouth, he says, you do ask, but you ask amiss. And I can't help but go back to the model prayer, some call it the Lord's Prayer, where it talks about in that prayer, thy kingdom come, your will be done. Asking for these things for personal pleasure, asking these things for personal Gain. You don't have these things that you lust after. You don't have these things that you covet. You don't have these things that you murder and fight for. Why? Because you're asking for it for the wrong reasons. 
And he goes back to Matthew 6.33. You're not asking because you're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're asking because you want. And you want. And you want. You ask, but you do not receive because you ask amiss that you spend it on pleasures. The downfall to all of this is that God resists the proud. God resists the proud. I can relate to that, can't you? I can relate to resisting someone that perhaps I don't like as well as someone else. Maybe I shouldn't think that way, but I think that's human. I think you guys can relate to that. Someone comes to you and asks you for a favor. If it's someone that you like, someone who's humble, someone who asks nicely, are you not more apt to go along and honor that person's request? I think it's one of my character shortcomings, but I've got a problem. If you tell me that I am going to do something, I'm probably not going to do that. <laughs> and that's probably not good, but that's who I am. I'll dig my heels in. I'm not doing that. Hey, we're going to go to such and such a place. No, we're not. But if you ask me, I'm pretty happy-go-lucky. We can do about anything. Much different approach. I, I think Michael's, and I blame it sometimes on the red hair, and people say it's not really red anymore. Well, I'm going to have to dye it because I think my personality fits the red hair sometimes. We're much more apt to go along with something if we're asked. Is that not what God's saying here as well? He resists the proud. You go to God and you tell Him, this is what I'm going to do. You go to God and you tell Him, this is what I want. You go to God and you tell Him, I'm better going to have this. I need to receive this or else God resists the proud. Just like you or I resist being told that what, this is what is going to happen to you. This is where you are going to go. You are going to give me this or that. We resist that in the way that a human can. How much greater, if God sets His mind to it, can He resist you or I? When we go to God and we tell Him the way things are going to be, it doesn't work very well, does it? And that's what James is saying here in the first six verses of chapter 4. God resists the proud. What do you think, church? Is God pretty successful <laughs> when He sets His mind to resisting something? I would say so. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Last point from this first Roman numeral, letter C. Uh, you and I, we cannot be a friend of the world or a friend to the world and a friend of God's we have to choose one or the other Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God John 15 18 and 19 says that if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you but if you were of the world the world would love its own you and I can't be in both in both camps. 1 John 3 and verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. I was in a situation once where I had two friends. Both of them were my friends. And they were friends until they weren't. <laughs> and then a conflict arose between the two and they began to fight and to bicker. And, and it was very, very brutal. And I was a third party, friends to both of them, except both of them started asking me to pick a side on who was right and who was wrong. And the problem was, they were both wrong. You ever been in that situation? <laughs> they were both wrong, and I would tell them both that they were both wrong, and they, well, I still demanded for me to pick a side. And so I got a nickname out of this arrangement. Y'all know what my nickname was that they nicknamed? Switzerland. <laughs> because Switzerland likes to remain neutral. And so they started calling me old Switzerland, because I wouldn't 
pick a side. Now, you know what happened when I refused to pick a side? In my mind, you know what I thought was going to happen? In my mind, they would both still be my friend because I didn't pick a side. I stayed neutral. They would both still like me. Do you know what happened in reality? They both got mad at me and neither one of them liked me. Anyway, I lost two friends. Is that not kind of what happens when we refuse to pick a side between the world and God? I don't want to go all in at church. I'll come Sunday morning. You guys are here on Sunday night, so you're catching it. I'll come on Sunday morning. Um, I'll come to some of the major things. I'll let my kids go and have fun. But I can't go all in on church because if I do, there's friends of mine in the world that might get mad and they won't like me. And so I'll put one toe in at church, but I'll keep one toe back here in the world. And, and, and I'm going to like the world. I'm not going to turn my back on church because, I mean, I don't want to anger God. We talked about that this morning. I don't want the wrath of God on me, so I, I'll be friends with the world. But I'll do some church things as well. And every now and then I'll mention uh, church to my friends. But I, I don't want to have to choose one side or the other. If there's a conflict, uh, about half the time I'll go one way or the other. I don't want to fully pick one side or the other. I, I don't want my friends from the world to be mad at me, but I sure don't want God mad at me. I'll try to be Switzerland. And I'll try to make them both content and happy with me. And the Bible says it's just not possible. You, you can't pick both. You can't be a friend of the world and be a true friend of God. You've got to make a choice. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, it's asked, choose this day whom you will serve. And you remember what was said at the end of that? As for me and my house, what church? We will serve the Lord. You've got to make a decision. And in an attempt to try to keep both sides happy, in an attempt to try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in church, you're going to lose your soul. You and I have to be careful. We cannot be a friend to the world and a friend of God's. Point number two, if pride is the problem, then humility cures worldliness. Humility cures worldliness. And so how does one obtain humility? If that's the cure, uh, we want the cure. And so how do we obtain that? Well, James Chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, as we continue through this study of this chapter, uh, tells us, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, just like pride had that cascade or that process we talked about in number one, point number two here, there's also a cascade in these verses, a natural progression that you can see. The first of those is that we are to submit yourself to God. You are to submit yourself to God. Um, Thy will be done, not my will be done. Is that hard for y'all? It's hard for me. Because Michael already has a plan. I already know how things are supposed to play out in, in my mind. And so this is how I want things and this is how it should. And It's very hard when we pray that prayer, isn't it? Not my will, but your will be done. What if God's will doesn't align with your will? What if the two are, are different? But if you and I are going to become humble, if we're going to have humility, 
then you and I have to put God's will ahead of our will. You and I have to uh, subject ourselves. We have to admit that God's ways are better than our ways and, and that we're willing to trust and accept whatever it is that He has in store for us. And so by submitting ourselves to God, number two, you and I then must resist the devil. We must resist the devil. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, if you recall the three different times, his response every time was to go back to Scripture and to say, it is written. I love the analogy used here in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 where it talks about the devil being like a roaring lion looking for an opportunity. Not laying by dormant. It's not a bear trap that you might accidentally step in. It's someone who is actively pursuing you. And I love what we're told to do. It doesn't say to defend yourself against the lion. It doesn't say to go conquer the lion. It says to flee from the lion. I've never been trapped in a room with a lion. Have y'all? But I've been trapped in a room with a wasp. I'm not allergic to wasps, but I might as well be. Terrified of getting stung by a wasp. I think I've been stung three times. But if I heard a buzz right now behind my ear, I would flee very quickly off of this stage. You guys would have to figure out if it was or wasn't a wasp. Ever get those big flies in your house that sound like they terrify me? It's like the things of my nightmares. Why? Because it's something that can hurt me. And it has hurt me in the past, and I don't want it to hurt me in the future. And so when I hear a wasp, I'm not inclined to walk over and take a look at it. I'm not inclined to see how close I can get to the wasp without getting stung. I don't try to make friends with the wasp, hoping that we can get along well and it won't cause any problems. I run away from the wasp. I don't even try to kill it. That's why God made dads. He comes over and takes care of the wasp, even at 39. It ain't nothing for me to make a phone call for him to come because I flee. That's exactly what we're told to do to the devil. Stop trying to conquer the devil by staying there and fighting whatever the temptation is. Stop trying to see how close you can get to that roaring, hungry, ravenous lion without him eating you. When you see the lion, when you see the devil, the temptation, flee. Run away as fast as you can. That's humility. Don't be arrogant and, and, and prideful and boastful to see how close you can get. Do what God's told us to do and resist or flee the devil. And as you're fleeing from the devil, number three, draw near to God. James tells you how. He says to cleanse your hands. How? Stop practicing sin. Purify your hearts. How? By purifying your mind. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 goes through the whole list of good things for us to meditate on. Don't just keep the filth out of your mind, but rather fill your mind with positive, uplifting, and encouraging things to be able to draw near to God. In so doing, you will humble yourself to God. Letter C, I think, is equally important here under number two. You and I have to be mindful of the things that we are doing. We have to be mindful of the things that we are doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you go through life not being mindful, not being purpose-driven in the way that we're carrying about our daily business, we have more of an opportunity to fall. You and I have got to be mindful of the things that we do. In so doing, it shows that we know and understand, letter D, the value of our soul. And there's nothing more valuable than our soul. 
In Luke chapter 12, it's the parable of the rich fool who has great gain and he's going to tear down all the barns. We've talked about it several times. I think I bring it up almost every time that I preach because it's, it's almost embarrassing how prideful he was about what he had accomplished on this earth and how little value he gave to the care of his own soul. The same points made in Matthew chapter 13, 44 and 45, where the kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure hidden in a field. And the man goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Why? Because he wants the treasure. It's like what's talked about in verses 45 and 46. The one who finds beautiful pearls and he finds one pearl of a great price and he goes and sells all that he has. Why? Because he wants to buy the one pearl because he knows it's worth. What would you or I give in exchange for our souls. Matthew 10 and verse 28 says, Don't fear those who kill the body and can't kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If you and I are going to have humility, we've got to know the value of our soul. Number three, as we study through the book of James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 talk about judging a brother. And we're instructed here to not judge a brother. And again, I think this is also a pride thing. It's also a pride problem, letter A, in wanting to judge one another. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? And this thought about judging one another, letter B, I think goes back to the golden rule. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. And I think it's my opinion here where we kind of blur the line sometimes on judging a brother or a sister and trying to help an erring brother or sister. There's a difference in the two. Uh, you know, the parable that talks about having the plank in the eye and trying to remove a speck in someone else's eye... Uh, not judging one another. I love how it ends where it comes back to the one with the plank and he doesn't tell him to quit trying to help the brother. He just says to get the plank out first. And then you can see more clearly how to help. If you see me in the middle of engaging in something or practicing something that's damaging to my soul as my brother or sister, think the Bible teaches, you have a duty or responsibility to come talk to me to try to help pull me back into the way to try to help pull me back into the church. You're not judging me. You see that I'm erring. And you try to pull me back. What this is talking about is when you get into motives. You're trying to judge the motive behind what someone is doing. You're trying to judge without righteous judgment. You're trying to talk about others behind their backs. These are our problems. Letter uh, C there, uh, you and I need to be careful as we do those things. We need to correct the erring, but we need to be cautious not to judge the motives behind the actions. James chapter 5, 19 and 20 says that if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Church, you and I have got to be careful to practice the golden rule in our judging of others. Bring the erring back, but do it with love. Do it without harsh judgments. Number four. Going along with the same line of thought about pride. Verses 13 through 16. You and I have to be careful to not boast about tomorrow. James 4, 13 through 16 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. 
whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But instead, now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. I don't want to bring up any bad memories. But was it 20, 20, 20, 19, what, whenever COVID, was that 19 or 20? Whichever one, I've tried tried to block it out of my memory. Whichever year it was when all that stuff, we were right here at church on Wednesday night. Do y'all remember that? We were here at church on Wednesday night, I was going into the teen room, Amber and I and the boys had tickets to go to the SEC tournament on Thursday. And Austin Ketchum would have given anything to have gone to the SEC tournament with it. He didn't have tickets, and so I made sure he knew that I was going the next day. I was, <clears throat> I was boasting about my plans for tomorrow. And we were in class, and he said, you know they're going to cancel that tournament tomorrow. There's no way they're going to cancel that tournament tomorrow. They've never canceled a sporting event in the history of sporting events. They're not canceling that tournament tomorrow. And halfway through my class, he held his phone up, the notification comes that they had canceled the SEC tournament and then the NCAA tournament and all the other tournaments. Bridges, you know this is a little too close to home for you too at the girls' state tournament. I didn't realize I was boasting about tomorrow. I didn't realize there was a possibility for what I thought I was doing tomorrow not taking place and just like that it, all the plans were gone. I didn't think about that being pride and arrogance. But for the first time in my life, it made me realize really just how insignificant our plans are. And not to say that God calls COVID or that God, I'm not saying, but how insignificant, how powerless you and I are in the grand scheme of things. Oh, December the 10th, huh? How powerless we felt as the tornado ripped through our town. My plans for the next morning changed instantly. Didn't yours? What a change was made. I don't think we do it intentionally to have these plans to say that we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But man, when we do, it puts a limitation on what God's able to change in the blink of an eye. And it tries to assign too much power to ourselves. But rather, instead, we need to approach life in the way it's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Your blank there is today. Today is the day of salvation. As we head down to the time for our invitation and our invitation song to be sung, that that is the invitation tonight. Today is the day of salvation. Whatever your plan is for the people, what pride and what arrogance for us to think that someday we'll get our life right with Christ. That someday we'll be baptized for remission of our sins. That someday we'll sit down with the preacher and we'll study Someday we'll make right the sin in our life. Someday we'll apologize to that family member or that friend that we've sinned against and that we've hurt. Someday we'll take care of this sin that's in our life. But not today. Because I've still got time. James says that's arrogance and that's boasting and that's pride speaking through you. Go back to what Greg read for us tonight. Seven things the Lord hates. A proud look. Our pride is something the Lord hates. Today is the day of salvation. Last point, number five, James chapter four and verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. I firmly believe that also is talking about our salvation. If you know what is required for you to be saved, if you know what is required for you to become a child of God, why are you delaying it? And so delaying that acceptance of the gospel and so delaying being washed in the blood of the lamb for the forgiveness of sins, it is a sin. We're sinning against God. 
Perhaps there's one or more here tonight that need to put on Christ in baptism this evening. You know that you need to. You know what's expected of you. You know what's required of you. Well, we can do that tonight. Perhaps you're here as one that's put on Christ in the past, but you're not living a life according to His will. And you've got plans for the future. Someday, you're going to get your life right with Christ. Don't wait for that day. Make that change today. Tonight. Right now. As we stand and Brother Jeff comes and leads us in our invitation song.